Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mark Williams. He's a cognitive neuroscientist, and many of you have probably heard of him. He's been on television. He's the director of Rethinking Your Brain, and he's worked with thousands of students and teachers and health professionals, company directors, to help them understand how their brain works, how to perform optimally and maintain a healthy brain. Without brain health, there is no health, as we like to say. Today, we're very excited because he's going to tell us all about his new book, which is coming out in August. It's called The Connected Species, How Understanding the Evolution of Our Brain Can Change the World. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you for having me along, Selena. So tell us all about this exciting new thing. You've been on the podcast before, so we've learned about all your backstory and how you became a neuroscientist, how you were leading some of the first neuroimaging in Australia in the 90s and your amazing backstory. So let's let's focus today on that new book that you've written. Thank you. Yeah, it was... Um... A book I've been trying to write for probably 10 years or so. Um, but as you know, with academia, um, you never really get time to write the big books. You're just writing the articles and getting them published. Um, and Which is also hard. Yeah, it's very, very hard. <laughs> very hard to actually get um, anything you know, substantial done. Um, so, yeah, when um, COVID hit and I took voluntary redundancy, uh, I decided it was time to finally sit down and write it, which was a really... Um, enjoyable process, to be honest. I, I'd never um, experienced flow like I did when I um, sat down and wrote that book. And I think it was because it had been in my head for so long and it was something that really wanted to come out and wanted to be written. Yeah. Um, yeah, which was really exciting for me. Um, it was a really, really good process. I know some people struggle with writing a book, but I actually really enjoyed it. Well, I also know you use the Pompadouro technique. I've learned all of your little tricks of the trade in your <laughs> neuroscience learning course. We'll go to that at the end. But what I'm curious to say, uh, to ask you, is you said that this came to you 10 years ago in the first moments. Um, do you want to take us back to that time? Like that's a long time ago in terms of how much things have transformed in those 10 years. What made you want to do that back then? Yeah, great question. So back then, um, there was a lot of research being done in face perception and facial expression perception. And, and I was doing a lot of that original research. Um, and we found some really interesting discoveries. And um, one of those was that the way we perceive faces is actually based on this template. It's actually an average of all the faces we see rather than being individual faces, rather than having a, a, a representation for each individual face we know. We actually have a template and we um, calculate the difference between that template and each individual we know, and that's how we work out who the person is and how we remember who the person is rather than having all these you know thousands of individuals because we're amazing at actually recognising faces. Um, and that's how we do it. It's a really simple method. But it also means that we that template changes based on the average of the faces we actually see. So we have a template based on the average of the faces we as an individual have seen over time. And that actually biases our perception and biases how we actually perceive those people around us. So it causes effects such as um, we, we automatically uh, orient to faces that aren't 
within that template. So the template is quite, is sometimes, or with most of it's quite narrow based on those that we see most, which is usually our race, for example. And therefore we, we orient two faces that aren't part of that as, as a warning system that they're not part of our group, that they're actually part of another group. We also don't, we, we can't recognise faces as well if they're not within that template, within that small narrow template that we have, many of us have. And so we don't recognise people from other races as well. So we orient to them quicker, but we don't actually recognise them and can't recall them as well as those within our template. Um, and so that, of course, has a whole bunch of ramifications for us in societies now where we have multicultural societies. Um, I also at the time was doing a lot of research with facial expressions and discovered that we actually perceive facial expressions automatically and that's done by this subcortical route rather than being done by our conscious perception. So we have a whole bunch of things going on in our brain that are automatic and happen outside our consciousness, which are actually changing the way physiologically we're reacting. So our heart rate and our um, sweat in, in, in our skin and all those things that you think of as stress um, are actually associate, can be associated with these automatic perceptions of the people around us. Um, and so that's where it sort of started. And then, of course, because of COVID and it's all been locked in and then the social anxiety that came from that, um, the worry that came from that, also uh, the impact of wearing masks um, had on, on a lot of people um, made me realise that it was time to, to write this book um, and it was a really important book to actually write because also with the internet and what we're doing on the internet, we're being dragged away from actually looking at each other. We, those those templates are becoming more narrow and our perception of facial expressions is becoming um, quite abnormal. We, we know that you know, year nine students and year six students even um, have abnormal facial expression perception because we know that if we take them on a camp and take them away from their devices, they actually improve their facial expression perception and they improve their empathy because you actually need to learn those things and you need to be looking at people and you need to be spending time with people. Um, so, yeah, because of the COVID, because of uh, the impact that multinational tech companies are having on our relationships, I thought it was time to actually write the book um, and tell people how our brains have evolved, what's really important for us as a as species um, and how we can actually move forward rather than heading in the same direction that we're heading at the moment. Uh, well, thank you for doing that. There's That's so there's, this book, there's so many things we could talk about. Um, so I'm going to try and stay narrow and uh, have you on again uh, because it's so deep. But uh, I love the title, Connected Species. And the more I've come to learn about your work and also been out in the public spaces, it's becoming really clear, isn't it, that connection is the epicenter of mental health, really. So the more connected you are, the more supports you have around you, the more greater chance you have of being healthier in terms of brain health. Yeah, so we, we now know that you know, just set, spending time with someone, just actually sitting down with someone that you connect with, someone that you have a relationship with, is better for your mental health than any drugs that we have, right? So, I mean, it's a really simple thing to do, but actually really does impact on our mental health, and we really need to be more aware of that. So so that's a, so let's talk a little bit about this concept of the brain being a connected species that you titled your book with. Can you, can you explain a little bit of about what you mean by that and how it relates to our social interactions in our relationships based on the evolutionary angle that you're taking in this book? Yeah, so we, you know, became the alpha species. We, we've taken over you know, every spot on Earth, um, not because of the fact that we 
um, are the strongest animal out there or the most intelligent animal out there or the, the one with the largest brain or uh, the, the, the strongest animal out there. We, we did it because of our connection, because we are so connected with each other. And we, we evolved a large brain so that we can connect across lots and lots of people because it's really complicated to actually connect with people, properly socialise, connect and actually have relationships with people because you need to do a whole bunch of things really quickly. You need to recognise who the person is. You need to be able to understand their body language you need to then mimic that body language so you can have a relationship with them um, you need to understand eye gaze which is actually a really complicated thing but you know when we're actually sitting in the same room and I shift my eyes somewhere else you know that I'm talking about whatever that actually is that I'm actually shifting and you will automatically orient to that as well um, facial expressions can be really complicated especially when we get past the basic facial expressions so all of these things that we do we do them automatically are, are all done by our brains and socializing act activates more of our brain than anything else we do because of the fact that it is so complicated and it required us to evolve a really large brain so that we could actually do it across species across across groups and if you think about it no so, other species so, so i'm sorry to interrupt there because i remember you You're telling right. for people listening that may not understand your level of understanding in this space because when you see birds flocking together what you're mm -hmm. saying is that we did evolve from that concept of the need to be connected like birds but where we're different is you don't see birds integrating with elephants in the same way is what you're trying to say it's across groups that humans have more capacity to do exactly we, we started off as you know any other animal that actually groups together and there are thousands of different species that group together because it's from an evolutionary point of view it's it's really important but we took it to the next level so you see um, colonies of bees for example or colonies of ants they'll work together and they'll all have roles and they'll do all those things which is amazing and very intricate but you never see one uh, a beehive interact with another beehive they never help each other to actually collect honey or tell the other beehive hey there's there's you know a predator coming or whatever same with bees and any other animal that you think of they have their groups but they stay within their groups whereas we actually interact across groups so you know the computer that i'm working on today that the, the everything that's come from this come from all over the world from groups everywhere around the world um and and the research and everything that went in on, on to create that over the last 200 300 years again came from groups all over the world where we've all interacted with each other as you know as scientists we all interact across countries and we across universities and across organizations so we as a species are the only species that do that that actually interact across groups and across we don't hold things within our own group and we don't only work within that small group whereas every other animal does that every other other animal has their little clan or their little group or their little hive or whatever it happens to be and they stay within that and they don't connect across and that's why we needed a bigger more complicated brain because we needed to be able to understand who's in our group and who's not in our group but also that people who aren't in our group can actually be okay and they're actually people that we need to interact with as well um, that's the bit that we're starting to lose is that people outside of our group are actually people we need to interact with as well because they're helping us to thrive right there's people from all different walks of life who, who who have contributed me to me having a laptop which allows me to talk to you and record this thing and I need to realize that and I need to recognize that and I think we're losing a lot of that and that's really sad because that's how we got to where we are now um, and if we want to go forward we need to embrace that idea that we're all connected and we're all all valuable
So what do you mean by we're losing that? Because there's so many groups in history, human history, that never go outside their own group too. Um, so so what, what do you see in terms of their survival? Like yes. Edward, for example, yeah. and, and then now you're saying we're losing that. Is that because of the lockdowns that meant that we had to stay more in our own groups to survive? Is that what you're thinking? <clears throat> Yeah, so the lockdowns, of course, as you as you know, a lot of social anxiety because of the fact that we weren't doing it, and our brains basically use it or lose it, and all of a sudden we're all told that we've got to stay home and we've got to only interact with those people that are really close to us, which of course would more would narrow our face perception template, but would also um, cause those areas of our brains that are actually involved in the interaction to actually start to, to atrophy. Would they, they wouldn't be working as well as they used to be. So we need to go back out and actually start interacting with people. We've also got these hybrid working environments where a lot of people are actually working from home all the time. So all they do is interact on the internet and they don't actually in, interact in real life. And if you're interacting on the internet, you're not getting the same neurotransmitters as you are when you're interacting in real life. And we need all those neurotransmitters to connect there's lots of things that happen when we're in real life that we don't get when we're over so the internet for people listening that aren't neuroscientists like you and i um what do you mean by that mark that when i'm only at home interacting with the internet i'm not getting the same neurotransmitters as i would be interacting with people like what would the what would the main i, I know it's very complicated but would there be some main points you'd like to focus yes. on? Yes, like you probably mentioned these in your book yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the big ones is actually touch or the result of touch. So we have C fibers in our skin, which actually activate an area in our brain, which releases oxytocin. And all of us, no matter where we come from, all societies have some way of, of appropriately touching each other when we actually greet each other. So more stoic societies will shake hands. And if you go to Europe, they'll kiss each other on the cheek. If you even the Inuits, the only part of their their skin that's showing is their face. So they'll rub noses when they actually greet. And that then releases oxytocin. And we know oxytocin makes you more connected with the person that you just touched. It makes you more willing to actually interact with them and feel as though you're part of their group. Um, and it creates bonds between people within society. Now, you don't get that when you're on, on a device. So you don't get that really important release of oxytocin. Um, we also don't have um, access to the body language. So because most of us only see from about the shoulders up, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on below that, which actually helps us and releases serotonin. And that that is in, um, involved in the, in the mirror neuron system, which is automatic. So when we normally see each other in, in a normal environment, which wouldn't be over the internet, we'd see the person's whole body and we would mimic in our brains, the, the motor areas in our brains would activate when they do something, which would also activate our areas of, the, of our motor system, similar to that which would then allow us to understand what they're actually trying to tell us from their body language, which we don't get when we're on the internet. But we also don't get the mimicry. So when we are actually talking with someone and we, we start connecting with them, we then start mimicking their movements. And if you've ever seen a bunch of teenagers sitting together, you'll, you'll notice that they're all sitting very similar to each other. And that's another way to connect with each other and releases these endorphins and things in your brain, which are really important for that connection, for actually understanding. And again, you can't get any of that when you're online because you don't have access to their whole body. And then we have eye gaze. So eye gaze is also really important. So normally if you and I were sitting together um, at a cafe or something and I 
was trying to get your attention on something else, I would look at it and you would then look at it automatically as well. And so you would know that that's what I'm trying to talk about, speak about. Or if there was three or four of us, we would all look at the same person when we want them to speak um, versus looking at someone else when we want them to speak. Or if you were trying to speak and everybody else was speaking over you, you would again use your eyes and your face to indicate that you wanted to actually have a say and everybody else would, would see that and automatically perceive that. You don't get any of that when you're actually online because we're just looking straight at each other. And if there's more than two, you know, two of us talking, you've got a whole bunch of people all staring at each other and actually not able to communicate that information which is really again really important and releases neurotransmitters um so yeah those are a bunch of, of similar of, of things um on zoom we do get facial expressions which is really good um so we do get the facial expressions and we do get the tone and prosody when we're doing things like this on zoom and and so on um but there's a, that whole bunch of other really important neurotransmitters that we're missing out on so that's a really imbalance in the neurotransmitters that are released which is why most of us feel a little bit off after we get off a Zoom call or after we spend all day online um, because we've had this really abnormal um, amount of neurotransmitters, this, this uh, yeah, yeah, not appropriate um, number of neurotransmitters being released uh, and a focus more on the dopamine system and not on those other really important neurotransmitters. So, so people listening here that have been trying to get people to go back to work and there's a lot of school students refusing to go to school because two years of lockdowns more or less off and on and the uncertainty is a long time and it's definitely a huge amount of time that can retrain and change people's brains for sure. So now you've got a sec and some people are going to be more anxious than others, of course, because that's course. they were anyway necessarily too. So people listening here are trying to get their kids to go back to school or they're trying to get employees to go back to work or they're trying to get more social engagements happening again. And then now we've got social media, which attracts us as well. What do you recommend to people listening about how to start this process? Because it is anxiety provoking, which stops people doing it. Uh, there must be some strategies. You mentioned taking students out into nature and off their devices as a really good step, at least for school students. I don't know what you're thinking about in the workplaces to help people understand how how challenging this is for people and the techniques and steps we need to do to make that change. It's not like just make people do it because their brain won't let them. So you must be thinking about how to help encourage leaders and principals and parents. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really important to do it slowly. It's really important to have everyone involved in the process, of course, not just you know telling people what to do. If you're talking about organisations, I think one of the errors, if you like, that a lot of organisations do is they'll say, okay, everybody come in on a Monday and a Friday, for example. But the problem is then you've got everyone coming in on Monday and Friday, which makes it more difficult for anybody who doesn't actually feel like coming in. Whereas what you, you'd be better to do is split it up so you have smaller groups coming in each day and so people can slowly get used to those smaller groups because, of course, the bigger the group, the more difficult it is. And plus you've got, which I talk about in the book, all these uh, face perception and facial expression perception uh, mechanisms which go off automatically um, and the more people in the room the more more that goes off and so the more anxiety provoking it's going to be especially for people who are having issues so having smaller groups organizing smaller groups so that you don't you know people aren't as anxious and having them meet in smaller groups um, 
it is really important. So doing it slowly and doing it in smaller groups and not having this idea of everyone's got to come in on a Friday or everyone's got to come in on a Monday, um, which is going to mean that there's going to be huge influx of people who are all feeling anxious and are all going to feed off each other because we know it's contagious, right? The way we're feeling is contagious. And so we actually portray you know, a negative emotion. Somebody else is going in going to look at us and, and they're going to feel the same emotion and everyone else is going to start feeling the same emotion. So you want small groups and you want people and you also want to have one or two advocates within that who, who like the idea of actually getting back to work and so they can actually help the other people who are coming by being positive about it and being, you know, energetic about it and being happy about it. So it's really important to do it slowly. It's really important to do it small. Similar thing in schools, of course, just having it so that the kids can do it in smaller chunks at a time and just build up. It's like any, you know, it's like any muscle as well. You've got to slowly work it and and, and exercise it and it will get stronger and you'll get better at it and it will happen um, over time. But we need to work it. It's really, really important because it's very unhealthy not to have it I, I i sort of in the book i compare it to fast food versus um home-cooked meal you know having a relationship with someone actually sitting down with someone and talking to them face to face and people who you can trust and people that you like working with is like having a home-cooked meal it's more difficult but it's really important because you get all the nutrients that you really need and it sustains you over a long period of time. Doing things online like this, although it's really easy, um, it's similar to having McDonald's. It's really easy, but you get this really sharp hit of dopamine and then it fades off. So you feel good when you're first doing it and then it feels bad afterwards and it's really not sustaining. It's really not good in the long term. So we need to get back to the home-cooked meals and stop going to McDonald's to try and interact with each other because we're not we're not doing ourselves any service by doing that and it's not good for our mental health and it's not good for our species long-term to be doing this. So this leads us to the title of your book that suggests understanding the evolution of our brain can change the world. Can, yes. you, can you elaborate on this idea how might this understanding shape our approach to societal challenges such as education, healthcare, and social cohesion? Yeah, so in education, I mean, a big problem in education at the moment is we're losing teachers um, and we're losing good teachers. And I think one of the problems there is that the teachers get into teaching because they love working with kids and they're not doing that as much as they used to do because all of a sudden they've got laptops in front of them, <laughs> which is disconnecting them from the teacher and from that important relationship from the teacher. We know that teach, the, the, the number one way of actually um, uh, being, of learning is through connection. So you've got to have a connection with the person that's actually teaching you to actually learn from them. And that's part of that evolution so that we would only learn from people we're actually connected with rather than people that we shouldn't be learning from. And so teachers need to be able to have time to connect with the students so they can then learn. They're also going to have the, the students' mental health is also going to be better because they're going to have people within the classroom, especially the teacher, who they're connected with, who they're going to have all those positive neurotransmitters being released every class that they actually have with that teacher. So you're going to get better mental health outcomes from that as well. And the students are going to be learning, which is also going to result in better mental health outcomes because when we're actually learning we actually feel better about ourselves and we actually learn more that way so in schools that's one of the aspects of it that i think is really important we need to really get teachers and we need the education system to realize that teachers need to connect with their students on a real level so they need to be given time to do that and when they do that those students are going to learn so much better and they're going to have better mental health outcomes and they're going to be 
better behaved in class. So, you know, a whole gamut of things which are really important. In society more general, I think, you know, we've got multinational um, internet companies or um, technology companies that are, that are really using our drive to connect to drive us apart, right? They're trying to get us to actually connect via these things called social media, which aren't social at all. Um, there's some, uh, uh, Justin Harris worked for um, Facebook and he tried to get Facebook to put on uh, Facebook a, a little button where you could say, I'm in you know, New York, for example. He lived in New York. I'm in New York this weekend. Anybody around, please, you know, let's catch up and let's have fun together. They said no. They, they, he'd written that and then they said no to that um, because they said no, then people would actually meet up. Um, and that would mean they wouldn't be on Facebook, right? And so that's not important. So there's nothing social about Facebook. Facebook is about advertising, either companies advertising what they're doing or people advertising what they're doing. But there's nothing social about social media. Social media is a good way to, to create a social event that is, say, I'm going to be blah here, let's go and have a party or whatever. But it's not social in itself. But a lot of people use it as a social thing. They use it as a tool to socialise rather than actually socialising in real life. So we need to, you know, do something about that. There's also lots of research showing that the, the um, influences on social media are the ones that are actually driving us further apart. So if you get rid of things like likes um, and these things and you get rid of influences from within those groups, we'll actually get closer together again. We'll actually start communicating with each other again. So we need to also have more controls over the social media and what they're doing. They're making billions of dollars out of our attention and driving us apart from each other and causing, you know, really severe mental health issues in our society um, and we need to stop those things and we need to stop those things now and that means governments actually legislating that they're actually not allowed to do these things which I, I have no idea I cannot understand why we haven't already done that um, but governments need to step, step up and actually do that. So you do a lot of work in organisations so we're just going to switch a little bit around that because there's so many myth busters that you teach in your neuroscience learning course and you, and you go into schools and do this. But let's just focus on the top three. So I think you alluded then a lot to devices and Australia. And there's some alarming statistics you mentioned. I don't know if you'd like to talk to some of those about how many Australian students are on devices compared to other places in the world and all of the research that you've done in these spaces to show how dev devices affect the way we learn. Yeah, so we we Australia is you know is winning when it comes to devices in schools, if you if you want to call, call it winning. Um, and so we we have more devices, or, or we did have. I'm not sure they haven't done any stats recently since COVID. But prior to COVID, we had more devices in schools than any other country in the world, and kids were on devices longer than any other country in the world and earlier than any other country in the world. But, you know, Australia has been really struggling when it comes to actual outcomes. That is, our education has been dropping and has been dropping pretty dramatically over the last 10 years since we started introducing those things. And if you look at the top 10 countries when it comes to outcomes um, in relation to actual learning, 
they're the countries that don't have a lot of devices in their in their classrooms and they don't have a lot of device time during school. So we need to really think about that because the evidence is that it doesn't actually help. And we know that you learn less when you're on a device than when you actually do things in real life or on paper. And so, again, we need to think about that. You know, we also know that just going out into nature and spending time outside is much better for you and your mental health than being inside on a device. So again, we need to think about that. Why are we getting kids and teenagers to spend hours and hours on a device during the day and then getting them to go home and do all their homework on a device while they're at home when we know that it's causing mental health issues, serious mental health issues. And then we turn around and say, oh, we've got all these mental health issues in schools. So let's let's put all these programs in there. But let, let's have a look at what we're actually doing and actually change what we're actually doing so that we're actually using the best of the neuroscience of today to actually teach these kids in the best way. And, and that is on paper. And that is with the connected teacher. And that is interacting in a way which is really positive and, and not on a device because we know it's really bad for mental health. We know it's really bad um, for learning. So I'm not sure why we continue to do it. Uh, <clears throat> um, so, yeah, that's uh, and there's a huge amount of research around that showing that. So how did we, as a country, become the leading per- leading kind of in that space? How did that happen? Have you found out? No, it just seems to be something that we we seem to have been very keen on doing within all of the education departments um, across Australia. Um, the government seems to have really pushed it. Each um, state education department has, uh, you know, a whole a huge section dedicated to learning on devices and learning online and learning. And so, you know, we needed to do it during COVID because of lockdown. Although we really didn't. I actually heard about a grade school out in Western Sydney where most of the students didn't have access to computers. So during lockdown, the, the teachers would actually drive around and give the students handouts um, and they would then do the handouts and then they picked them up a couple of days later. And it was they had much better outcomes, both from learning and also mental health outcomes than the ones that were online all day. And, you know, really sadly, I know of one school in particular where they had five attempted suicides during lockdown or just after lockdown. And they were the schools that were online. They were the schools that were, you know, on devices 20, you know, well, not 24 hours a day, but but for long periods of six, seven hours a day um, during the learning stage, and then they had to do homework after school. So, you know, it, it is actually better to do it offline. Um, and the research actually shows it's better to do it offline. Uh, it's really good that every state in Australia, except for Queensland now, um, has banned is or is banning uh, mobile phones from schools because we know that banning, and there's some great research, um, especially from Spain, showing banning mobile phones not only decreases cyberbullying but decreases bullying itself um, as well as increasing um uh, improving mental health um, and improving uh, physical health because kids are actually doing stuff rather than looking at their phones during lunchtime. So that, those are a couple of easy things. Why it happened in Australia, um, I don't know, maybe Australians just like the newest, fanciest, shiniest thing rather than actually thinking about the outcomes of it. Um, <laughs> maybe that's the problem. I don't know. <laughs> well, we are, we're well known for taking up technology, that's for sure. We I, are, I, yes. I was also going to ask you, you're a parent. So with all of this knowledge you gain from all of your work you've done in neuroimaging and neuroscience over a couple of decades more, so how does it change your parenting? 
Yeah, you know, well, it probably hasn't changed my parenting. It's probably made my parenting uh, more focused on them not using the devices. So, yeah, when I first, I mean, I first got into this because I had kids. I, I was studying neuroscience for a long time before that but um when i was at mit was when the first iphone was released and mark zuckerberg first released facebook who was just down the road um so i saw it all but i saw it from a distance and i was studying facial expressions face perception and all these things but i didn't really think of the two together then i had kids and i was like well i want to find out what's going on here before i introduce my children to them and so that's when i really delved into it a, a very deeply um so yeah my kids have my my daughter is now a teenager and she goes to a high school which is um she has to get a bus and then she gets a bus after school to her dancing classes and to music classes and stuff so we gave her a phone then that's when she got a phone um but she only uses it on the bus on the way there and on the you know if she needs to contact us when she gets home we all have an area where we plug our phones in where we can all see that they're all there um, because you've got to all do it you can't just tell kids to do it you've got to do it as a group my son doesn't have a phone yet um but you know well, he's not he's about to go to high school and we'll see where his high school is and whether he actually needs one i mean there's a need right sometimes um if they are traveling a fair distance but again it'll be the same restrictions but we also all have monitoring apps on all of our devices and then once a week as a family we'll sit down well, actually, now we do it about once a fortnight. We'll sit down and look at what each of us is doing. And to be honest, I'm usually the worst out of us. So my daughter gets to chastise me and say, hey, Dad, what are you doing spending so much time on LinkedIn or whatever? And I can go, yeah, that was pretty silly. Let's cut that down and let's see how we can improve that for next next time. So that's a really good way to actually get the whole family to see what you're doing, everybody's doing, and have a discussion around, hey, is this, you know, do you have an excuse for this? Sometimes I do have an excuse because of business or if I'm traveling. Um, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's just me being lazy. Um, and so we can all see what we're all doing. And I think that's really important to do that as a family and to do that consciously on a regular basis where you're actually because the 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 tricks that they use to capture our attention and keep our attention and get us addicted to these apps and so on are, are really really good i mean that they use the best of the best um and they have amazing you know <laughs> researchers over in these companies to actually ensure that we are so we need to be really vigilant um until the governments actually say no you're not allowed to use intermittent reinforcement and you're not allowed to use you know these techniques we've got to be very very, very vigilant um and stop ourselves from doing it so uh, some of the you talk some what in your courses about some of the results you've had by schools getting rid of their devices um, for kids in school and also people playing outside and also, you know all sorts of different things. Do you want to talk about some of the big um, shape shifting things that you've noticed by going in there and teaching people about this work? Yeah, I mean the the, the phones is usually the biggest shift. Um, once you actually ban the phones or you have restrictions on the phones, I, I don't like the idea, you know, people talk ban, banning phones. I, I like to use the word restricting the phones so that the students realise 
that it's really important to restrict the phone so that when they leave school, they restrict their phones as well. So they can go, hey, this actually isn't good for me. I'm going to put it away while I'm working or this isn't good. I'm going to put it away while I'm socialising. So restricting the phones, I think, is really important. And it's amazing the difference I see when I go into a school um, and they're allowed to have phones at lunchtime and that they're all sitting there looking at their phones and they're not interaction. And then you go in six months later um, after you've put in restrictions and there's been discussions around it and all the rest of it. And all of a sudden, you know, I have principals saying that they've, you know, boys have come out and, uh, you know, asked to borrow the cricket set for the first time in four or five years or they've, you know, and they're playing cricket and they're interacting with each other and they're all talking to each other and the girls are playing soccer and playing handball and all these really important things which get them to actually interact or they're just sitting around chatting, which is really, really important for our our. Um, but also seeing then the, the roll-on effects of how um, much better they're performing in class because because they're doing some exercise at lunchtime, because they're you know resetting their brains because they're chatting to someone and they're having fun, then they go into class and the teachers say, well, they're, they're so much better behaved in class, they're so much more focused in class and they're getting better marks in class and so on. So those things are, are awesome and really important. Um, and another one... I do a lot in schools is to instigate that that they spend the first 30 minutes yeah. of the day every day reading a book and reading whatever book they want um, because literacy is, is a big problem in this country and so we've got to improve it. But the best way to improve it is to actually get them to love reading and the only way you do that is to allow them to read whatever they want so if they want to read a comic, they can read a comic. If they want to read a magazine, they want to read. I mean, I, I learned how to read um reading surf magazines because I love surfing and I hated everything else. And so that's how I learned how to read because I wanted to be able to read tracks and so on, um, which came out back when I was a kid. Um, so we we need to get kids to love reading. And by having 30 minutes where everybody in the school reads at the same time, everybody's doing it at the same time, really does improve. And there's huge and amount of And you're talking about now. reading in, um, you're reading books, you're not reading. You're reading paper. Yeah, absolutely. Not on a screen. Um, definitely paper because you remember better. Um, I mean, there's great research now showing that kids who learn how to read on a screen have abnormal development of their white matter tracks. So the white matter tracks are the, are the, the tracks that, that um, link all the areas of the brain. So there's a big ones that go across the brain and then there's one that go from the front to the back and the back to the front and so on. And they're extremely important for brain function. And it's been shown now several times uh, with several different groups uh, that Kids who learn how to read on devices have abnormal development of those tracks. So their brains are actually abnormal compared to what someone who learns how to read on paper is. So we need to be so careful um, with reading on screens and we need to really adjust what we're doing in schools and get them to be reading paper because it is so much more enjoyable and you don't have all the stress and anxiety associated with it because just being on a, on, a, on a phone increases your cortisol levels which means you're more stressed. And that also has roll-on effects for your body health as well as your mental health. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many. So many I can imagine when you when people first meet you and you go into an organisation, you must get so much kickback from so many people. It's interesting. A lot of people, I think, are starting to wake up to it. A lot of people are frustrated. In the beginning, I'm phones. thinking. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. I mean... I think I'm lucky. I mean, I'm a neuroscientist, right? I, I can program in six different languages. I was lucky enough to work at MIT. I, technology, I've, I've developed, you know, helped to develop uh, 
a virtual reality um, for using as a clinical diagnosis. Like I, I, I love technology. I think it's brilliant. It's just the way we're using it at the moment, the way the average person uses it is really, really bad for their brains. And so we need to change that so that we can start using it in a positive way. Because I think the, the phones and the devices, I think they could, you know, catapult us to amazing, you know, places if we wanted to and if we used it in a good way. But at the moment, there's a small number of extremely wealthy billionaires who are making huge amounts of money out of us, out of all of us. And it's really negative on us as individuals, but it's really good for them because they're making lots of money. Um, but that's all they're doing is making lots of money and they just really are, I think, causing huge problems in society. And we, th so we need to adjust that. But we don't want. I don't want to throw out all of this great technology. I use it all, and I love it all. Um, and I think again, it'll it'll catapult us to great heights if we make the switch and actually start using it in a positive way. Well, thank you for so much for doing that and all the work you're doing out in the world. It's really impressive. Um, let's just um, focus back down as we head to towards the close. Uh, do you want to inspire people through some of your key messages from your book and how to think differently about themselves and their connections with others and some of the like inspirational small things that they could do at the moment to make that change that you can see will happen through this understanding? Yeah, I think the best thing that anybody can do is to or schedule in, if you can, every day, if not maybe once or twice a week, to, to meet up with someone and go for a walk with them without your phone and chat to them, just chat to someone um, on a walk because you've got multiple benefits there. You, you, you're connecting with someone um, in real life, which is really important, and you're actually chatting to someone and making that really important connection. But also you're getting out into nature, which is really good for your brain, and you're doing exercise, right? And just walking is actually quite good exercise for us. So, you know, on a regular basis, go for a walk with someone, and both of you, um, if you can't leave your phone at home, turn it off so that it's not going to disrupt um your, your discussion because we know that people have less um less important or, 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 or less emotionally um discussions when they've got a phone on them so you know turn it off or leave it at home the other thing is turn off all your notifications on your phone so all of my notifications are off on my phone and all my devices because i i don't want the tech company using intermittent reinforcement to actually constantly capture my attention so that i'll get addicted to these things so i turn off all my notifications and then i factor into my day when i'm going to look at those and it's been shown that that actually improves your mental health and improves your productivity so you factor in when you're going to check linkedin or you factor in when you're going to check your emails and you only do that a couple of times a day and i tell all my loved ones and all the people that i work closely with if they really need to contact me to call me and my phone will ring and i will answer it and i'll have one of those you know that's what they're actually for um i'll have a conversation with you and we'll work out what's going on and I'll, you know that'll be all good so yeah turn off all your notifications get all your kids to turn off their notifications um those are two you know that are really simple to do i think um, and that will really benefit your mental health and really benefit your productivity and make you more connected and will give you people, you know, that, that are important to you that you can actually then rely on if something goes wrong because, you know, shit happens occasionally um, and it's good to have those people close that you know, you know, are going to be there when, 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 that, when that happens. So someone uh, that I'm that's close to me is about to finish her PhD and she's going into a boot camp to start the writing process and she does... Um she's looking at the vascular system in zebrafish in peter mac in melbourne and she talked about how they're using the pompadouro technique 
during the boot camp. And I thought, I know the person that taught me all about that. So that's another little thing we might finish this conversation with is something really cool people can understand and apply to improve their productivity and mental health. Do you want to describe that a little bit? Yeah, so Pomodoro technique is, it was originally studied by a group of Italian scientists, which is where Pomodoro comes from because it means tomato and they use these tomato timers that all kitchens in Italy um, use. Um, and so it's just you get a timer and you set it for 25 minutes and then you get rid of all distractions, which means turning on off all your notifications and getting rid of all of those things. Um, and then you just focus on one thing for that 25 minutes, one project, one idea, one whatever it happens to be. If it's a student, then studying one topic for that 25 minutes. When the uh, alarm goes off, when it actually comes 25 minutes, you stand up and you move for five minutes. So do sit-ups or push-ups, depending on how healthy you are, do something which is within your, easy within your your uh, wheelhouse. Um, and then after five minutes, then you sit down and you do another 25 minutes. And if you do that four times, and that equals two hours um, of productivity. And it's been shown to be the most productive way you can spend your day. I always, I do it at least once a day, I do that two-hour session, um, and I get more done during that than I do for the rest of the day if I don't do another session during the day. And so it's a great way to be productive. It's a great way to exercise your attentional mechanisms so that if you do have problems focusing, this will actually exercise that and get you to focus better. And after a few weeks, you'll find you'll get really productive and you'll get really into the zone and, and work really well for that 25 minutes. Uh, the thing is, when you have the five-minute break, you've just got to move. You can't check your email or check LinkedIn or, or you know, text someone or whatever. You've just got to move and then get back to what you were doing. Um, the other thing is you want to have it showing. I've also used this um, with a lot of uh, teachers um, with their students. So with students with ADHD or autism who have trouble actually sitting and actually concentrating in class, we do it and we set it at a really low number. So it's a one minute or two minutes or five minutes, depending on the, on the student, but at, at a time that they can cope with and then slowly increase it. And again, because your brain is like a muscle, the more you use it, the more it's going to get. And, and we've got kids who couldn't sit still for more than one or two minutes or who were truants and were having huge problems in class, up to being able to sit in class for 20 minutes without any problem and actually enjoying the process of sitting in class because they're learning and they're actually part of the class and they're actually not interrupting. They're not getting in trouble all the time. So it's a great way to do that as well. So if you're a parent and you've got a child, you know, do it a couple of times in the evening with your child. Um, and, and increase their their ability to attend and actually focus, which is going to be great for them later on in life, but it's going to be awesome for them in class. And the teacher's going to love it, love you for it, and you're going to love it because their marks are going to get better and they're actually going to start enjoying school, which is fantastic. Um, but even if you've got HSE students, you know, if they're studying for exams or whatever, it's a great way to study to actually do the 25 minutes at a time because we know that once you get past 25 minutes your attention network and your ability to concentrate starts fading that's why they use 25 minutes and they've done a huge amount of studies um, to show that 25 minutes is the optimal for being productive and then you have the five minutes to reset and then you go again so great so it's pomodoro <laughs> and the pomodoro and it also gets to the point that you can't multitask right this is the great other myth is that the brain won't let you multitask. It just can't do it. No, no, you can't multitask. It's a complete and furphy. Um, 
our brains, because our working memory, which is basically our consciousness, um, originally we thought it had seven slots, or it did originally have seven slots. So there's only you can only hold seven very um, basic items in your working memory at any one time. Recent research suggests that we're down to about four or five because of what's happening in our society. Um, but yeah, it means that it's really limited. So you can't, whenever you are doing two things at once, you're actually task switching. And each time you switch task, you lose 90 90 minutes of 90 seconds sorry 90 seconds of what you were doing so each time you go from one task to another each time you look at your email each time you see your email come up with another beep every time you check your phone as you're trying to do every time you do that you lose the last 90 seconds of what you were doing so if you think about the number of times you switch tasks during the day and the amount of time you're actually losing i mean no wonder we're less productive today than we've ever been in the past because we're really not getting anything done because we're constantly switching from one thing to another that's uh, so much uh, information you've given us all today. Really, thank you for all your work. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how well your book does in the world. I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. Um, great book to write, really timely and so needed um, as we head into this more disconnected world and raising that awareness, I think, is so important. I think the number one thing that I got a little bit really blown by when we first had our conversation last year was how stressed you get when you attend to people and faces that you've never seen before and how it activates the fear centers of the brain. And that's driving a lot of the disconnection between groups too. And I think that's such a powerful thing to understand and know. Yes, it is. It is. It's a really important thing to understand. And it's important for us to stop and realize that this is an automatic response based on our evolution. And so therefore, it's not anything about that individual, but something that's happening in us. And so we can quieten that down by actually just stopping and breathing deeply and, and being more calm about it rather than reacting to it or feeling as though there's something wrong with that other person. So, and the other great thing as we head out is that neuroscience is going to change the world. It's just, <laughs> how, it's just how do we educate? And I, I put up a post recently showing someone that could do a 360 on a swing by getting uh, the right yes. equipment versus a reg regular swing. So that's how I often think about the brain is once people get the right tools, you can actually do things more easily by understanding what you don't know and then making those changes. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. We we can all change our brains. We've just got to know how to do it and why to do it. <laughs> Thank you, Mark, for everything you're doing out in the world. Really, really appreciate it. Really excited about your new book. And uh, we look forward to having you on again to learn more about this ama these amazing things that you're doing in practice too. Thank you, Selena. Thanks for having me on again. Um, and thank you for everything you're doing as well because it's great. And I'll leave all the connections to your website and everything else if you want to connect with you. I'll leave links for everyone so that they can find you. Great. Thank you. <laughs>